Gentlemen, bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Guys and Dolls. How are we doing? I missed you! Yes! It was only a week, but it feels like I was away from you and this show for so long. And now I will never take a vacation again. Daddy's never going anywhere. Daddy's never going back to the war. He's staying here stateside with you children, and he's going to be giving you lots of bowls of porridge. Yes, yes. Oh! It's good to be back. Uh, I, I have a couple of points to make a little bit of new business here at the top of the show before we dive into Guys and Dolls. I have added Together Wherever We Go from Gypsy to my list of friendship slash rallying cry songs. You might recall me describing this list in greater detail in the Lion King episode. Dedicated listener Lily recommended that I add Together Again from Young Frankenstein to that list, which I believe qualifies as the characters involved are getting on the same page and vowing to achieve shared goals. She also suggested Travel Song from Shrek the Musical, but I feel that comes too early in the development of Shrek and Donkey's relationship. Shrek specifically loathes Donkey during that song, so unfortunately, I won't be adding it to my list, but thank you, Lily, for your suggestions, and I would love to hear more suggestions from the listeners. If you want to get the full list, you're going to have to go back and listen to that Lion King episode. Download it again, baby. Stream it again, baby. Also, big news, I bought a five-show Broadway in Chicago package. Now, I first brought up the Broadway in Chicago season, I feel like many, several episodes ago, but I finally followed through. Uh, So this means I'll be seeing everything from this season except Frozen, which is fine by me. So get ready for eventual reviews of Mean Girls, Summer, the Donna Summer Musical, Once Upon a One More Time, and Once on This Island, and maybe Oslo, the one play they are offering, perhaps, I don't know. Thanks to dedicated listener Zach for pointing me in the direction of the special deal that allowed me to make this purchase. And those reviews of those shows will be available through our Patreon. More info on that at the end of this episode. But for now, Now, show me the show facts. Gotta get those show facts, baby. Guys and Dolls was the 1951 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on November 24th, 1950 at the 46th Street Theater, where it ran for 1,200 performances. 1,200 even, baby. It is the 88th longest-running show in Broadway history between Sugar Babies at number 87, which logged 1,208 performances, and In the Heights at number 89, which logged 1,000. 
1,184 performances. The book was written by Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs, and it is based on the short stories The Ideal of Miss Sarah Brown, Pick the Winner, and Blood Pressure by Damon Runyon. The music and lyrics are by Frank Lesser. The director was George S. Kaufman, though IBDB cites his credit as staged by, so technically it's staged by, not directed by. The musical director was Irving Ackman, the choreographer, or uh, as he is credited, again, a bit of a distinction here, he is credited as dances and musical numbers staged by Michael Kidd. Set design, Joe Melsner. Lighting design, Joe Melsner. Costume design, Alvin Colt. And the original Broadway cast included Robert Alda, Isabel Bigley, Vivian Blaine, who would go on to star in the original London production as well as the film adaptation, Sam Levine, Pat Rooney Sr., Douglas Dean, Tony Gardell, Bern Hoffman, Stubby Kay, who also starred in the original London production and the film adaptation, Netta Packer, Tom Petty, B.S. Pulley, Paul Reed, and Johnny Silver, who also starred in the original London production and the film adaptation. Tony nods. Now, uh, these are all of the awards that the show won. It won Best Musical, of course. It won Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical, Robert Alda. Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical, Isabel Bigley. Best Choreography, Michael Kidd. Best Direction of a Musical, George S. Kaufman. Now, as a reminder, these awards were given at a time when nominees were never announced, so I'm uncertain as to what awards Guys and Dolls may have been considered for but didn't take home back in 1951. But enough about that, let's get into the plot. Uh, When I wrote down this plot summary, I pulled it right from my noggin. I wrote down, this is what I wrote down. I wrote, I've got to do my best to recall the plot from memory. I did, I did. As I've been cast in the show twice, saw it on stage as a teenager, and have watched the 1955 film adaptation several times, boiled down to a single sentence, Guys and Dolls is about habitual gamblers and the women who love them. Simple, right? Now let's dive a bit deeper James Cameron documentary style. Again, I wrote this down off the top of me old dome, I did. Nathan Detroit is a gambler. He runs a floating crap game, which means the venue for said crap game is constantly changing. This is due to the fact that one Lieutenant Brannigan is always keeping an eye out for criminal activity. My boyfriend Chris played Lieutenant Brannigan as a kid, I should note. Nathan's in a bind because a lot of high rollers are coming into New York City looking for action, but every venue he tries to lock down winds up being a dead end. This upsets Big Julie, a particularly nasty gangster type who likes to threaten people with his gun. Big Julie, he mean guy, he not nice guy. With his back against the wall, Nathan's only viable option seems to be the Biltmore Garage, but the Biltmore Garage is asking for a thousand bucks in advance. A thousand stinking bucks! Nathan is in a tough cookie of a situation, one made all the more stressful by Adelaide, the nightclub performer he's been engaged to for something like 14 plus years. Adelaide wants Nathan to give up the life of a gambler, and despite his assurances that he will do so, these promises appear to be empty ones. Luck strikes when the dashing and legendary gambler Sky Masterson rolls into town. He and Nathan get into an argument over dolls, how women are essentially interchangeable and shouldn't drag their respective guys down. Sky insists he could whine and woo any doll who happened to cross his path, which inspires an idea in Nathan's scheming brain. He bets Sky he won't be able to take a local missionary named Sarah Brown to Havana, Cuba. And if he wins, Sky will have to pay Nathan a thousand bucks. There is also 
also a lot of talk before this bet is conceptualized that revolves around cheesecake and strudel. How much cheesecake? How much strudel? I love all of the talk about cheesecake and strudel. I find it to be quite charming. How much cheesecake? How much strudel? Sky accepts Nathan's bet and is ultimately successful, managing to convince the buttoned-up Sarah Brown to come with him to Cuba. By the time they return to New York early the next morning, the two have fallen in love, but their honeymoon period comes to an end when it's revealed Nathan has been using Sarah's mission as the location for his crap game. Oh, Nathan. Sarah believes the Havana trip was a setup to get her out of the way, and she and Sky part on bad terms. Desperate for a new venue, Nathan moves the game to the bowels of New York's sewer system, where Big Julie proceeds to cheat everyone out of their money. Sky appears to inform Nathan he never took Sarah to Havana. He lies to Nathan. He says, I never took Miss Sarah Brown to Havana, and he proceeds to hand Nathan a thousand bucks. Moments later, Sky hits upon an idea for a bet. If he can manage a successful roll of the dice, everyone at the crab game will come to Sarah Brown's mission for a prayer meeting. If Sky loses, he'll pay each of the gamblers a crap ton of moolah. The guys are hesitant, but the allure of dough is too tempting to pass up, and they agree to the terms of the bet. Sky wins, and the group begrudgingly attends the prayer meeting, where one particular gambler, Nicely Nicely Johnson, inspires everyone with his tale of spiritual redemption. After the meeting lets out, Sarah and Adelaide cross paths and vow to lock down their respective men, knowing it will only be a matter of time before they're able to soften their edges and make them respectable members of society. The show ends with a double wedding. Sky is dressed in fine missionary attire, and Nathan is Sorry to report, he never booked a venue for the ceremony. What? Womp womp. Nathan, a note on the Havana-Cuba sequence. This is a very long sequence in the show's first act. This is where the show reveals its age, as it involves Sarah and Skye getting drunk at a club. Skye orders the first round, insisting their drinks only contain Bacardi rum because it acts as a preservative, quote-unquote. After consuming several of these drinks, Sarah becomes comes tipsy and comes on to Sky as a result. She's over the moon for him, but Sky knows he's been a heel for leading her astray and doesn't want to take advantage of her. The couple wind up returning to New York City, where, after a bit of sobering up, they confess their love for one another. As originally written, this is 100% problematic, right? But it's not a show killer in 2019, so long as you do some work as a director. The key, I think, is to approach Sarah as someone who is tough, not blindly more moralistic or naive. This interpretation makes sense if you remember how Sarah walks the streets of New York every single day. To do that, you need to have your eyes open to the world and its dangers, its cruelties, what she would consider its sins. And a person like that, even a missionary, wouldn't take shit from anyone. This is supported by Runyon's own words. I'm pulling from his original short stories. Quote, Nobody ever figures Miss Sarah Brown dumb, as she is always on her toes and seems plenty able to take care of herself even on Broadway. If you work with an actor to craft this version of Sarah Brown, the Havana sequence would potentially play out quite differently. Instead of tripping into drunkenness, this Sarah would know the score from the get-go. She knows what's in these drinks. She knows Skye's a playboy, but she's also ready to let her hair down for once. Ultimately, it's all in your actor's delivery of the dialogue. Give it a shade of wryness so we know she's not being fooled. Hell, play the it-acts-as-a-preservative line as a joke they both pick up on something they can laugh at before downing the drinks with relish. Ah, preservative, he says. Ha! What a kick in the pants. You can still
still direct your Sky Masterson to feel guilty, by the way, but have that guilt rooted in the bet he placed with Nathan. This is what will prevent him from getting too intimate with Sarah. Everyone always complains about Sky and Sarah being the most boring characters in Guys and Dolls, but if you do the work, you'll find there's a lot to play with here. Sarah and Sky are broken in their own ways. They hide behind philosophies that simplify the world and stuff people into boxes, but this one night results in their outer layers falling away. He's not just another gambler to her, and she's not just another church prude to him. With any luck, the lifting required on your part as a director and their part as actors won't come with a ton of strain. God knows fixing guys and dolls seems a hell of a lot easier than fixing the problems of a grease or kiss me Kate. Now, for the purposes of this episode, I read a few of the stories, a few of the key stories from Guys and Dolls, the stories of Damon Runyon. I never read these stories, despite having been in the show a couple of times. But from the beginning, I could tell Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs did an excellent job of translating Runyon's voice to the stage. I'm honest to God currently maintaining a Google document of character names and locations from these stories, because if I ever direct Guys and Dolls, I want members of the ensemble to be given these names, and I want the locations referenced via the scenic design. My production would be packed to the brim with Runyon Easter eggs, this much I know. In the collection's opening story, Broadway Complex, Nathan Detroit is threatened by a man who is, unbeknownst to Nathan, suffering from a personality disorder. Nathan responds by smashing an order of Southern-style ham and eggs over the man's head. I also learned a whopper of a slang term from this first story, Akamarakis. It means deceptive, showy, or altogether meaningless nonsense. I believe it is technically a pure Runyon term. He's like Shakespeare in this moment. He creates this word, and the sentence that I'm going to give you as an example of using it in a sentence is, hey, enough with the Akamarakis over here. Get with the blintzes already. Oh, shlemiel, shlemazel. So I read, <laughs> that was just an observation from the from the first story in the collection. I read The Ideal of Miss Sarah Brown, Blood Pressure, and Pick the Winner. Again, these are the stories on which the show is more explicitly based. In The Ideal of Miss Sarah Brown, Sky Masterson is known as, he's referred to as, The Sky. The Sky. There is no excursion to Havana, which I found surprising, but I did learn Sarah hates gambling because it ruined the lives of her father and brother. During the story's finale, Sarah interrupts the crap game to place her own bet against Sky's soul, which is a lot more interesting to me than the somewhat rushed ending the stage show provides. Now, in Blood Pressure, this is in wh- this is the story in which the unnamed narrator finds himself in the company of Rusty Charlie, a notoriously vicious gangster who surely served as the inspiration for Big Julie. Big Julie is written for the stage as a softie compared to Rusty Charlie, who at one point knocks a horse out cold with a single punch just because he can. This story contains some, let us say, outdated and offensive language regarding Jewish and Italian people. Just gonna put that out there. And in regards to pick the winner, what seems to have been pulled from this particular story is the idea of a long engagement and nothing more. Moving on. I checked out the book by Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs. I needed to sit down with this script so I could answer the most important question we may tackle on this podcast. Does Adelaide enter on a pumpkin before singing A Bushel and a Peck? For years, I've always thought she enters on a pumpkin. 
and the thought has always tickled me. But this week I began to doubt myself. I, I thought to myself, does she enter on a pumpkin, or am I merely a fool? Folks, I am here to tell you Adelaide does not enter on a pumpkin, but, 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 but! Her backup dancers do bring a pumpkin, a large pumpkin, downstage so she can sit on it while singing. So I was close, folks. In my production, she's going to enter on a pumpkin. It shall descend from the heavens if I have my fucking way. I guarantee it fucking shall. I did not rewatch the 1955 film adaptation, but as I said earlier, I have seen it several times, many times since I was a child. Various cuts were made, and Frank Lesser wrote three new songs to fill in the gaps, but we'll get to those changes during the song deconstruction portion of the show. Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando starred in the 1955 film adaptation. Sinatra low Brando and resented his having received the role of Sky Masterson. Apparently Sinatra wanted to play Sky Masterson. Uh, Sinatra called Brando mumbles, which seems kind of pathetic. I mean, calm down, Sinatra. Sinatra probably went to his grave grumbling about this shit, so maybe we should refer to Sinatra as grumbles from now on. I adore the movie and have ever since I was a kid. The scenes in Mindy's restaurant and Adelaide's dressing room feel especially cozy to me, and I love the shot of Vivian Blaine looking through her dazzling Technicolor medicine cabinet. For whatever reason, that is a perfect shot to me. It's always stuck with me. Blaine is fabulous. It's no wonder she was one of the few people to transition from the original cast to the London cast and then the silver screen. As far as Brando goes, we need to cut him some slack, I think. He may not be a vocal powerhouse by any stretch of the imagination, but I do find him appropriately authoritative and sexy, which is what you want out of a Sky Masterson. Sinatra is a spindly character actor, which is why he works as Nathan. Deal with it, Grumbles! Back in March of this year, there were reports of a new film adaptation going into production, but I haven't seen anything about that since. Do you remember when Nicole Kidman and Vin Diesel were supposed to film a version in the early 2000s in the wake of the Chicago adaptation? And then we were supposed to get, apparently, I don't remember hearing about this, but we were also supposed to get a version starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Channing Tatum as Nathan and Sky. I have to assume. At this point, I'm not holding my breath when it comes to anything getting done, but maybe Spielberg's West Side Story will stoke the rumor mill fires anew. Now, I listened to several cast albums. I'm going to give you the full breakdown here. I listened to the 1950 original Broadway cast, specifically the 50th anniversary edition, which provides a few songs from the film soundtrack. I listened to the 1963 Reprise Musical Repertory Theater cast. Now, the phrase Reprise Musical Repertory Theater is not a reference to an actual theater company, I should note. It's a reference to a set of four vinyl albums recorded in 1963 and sold via mail order in 1964. Sinatra oversaw and appears on all of these recordings, along with the likes of Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Debbie Reynolds, and Rosemary Clooney. The other recordings in the set are Finian's Rainbow, Kiss Me Kate, and South Pacific. It's a rock-solid moneymaker of a concept, and I enjoy how Guys and Dolls is filtered through the Rat Pack's bada-bing, bada-boom casino lens. There are random lyrical changes, the songs are completely out of order, and who plays what role changes from track to track, so this album is in no way meant to be a faithful representation of the stage show, more like a fun remix. I listened to the 1976 Broadway revival cast. This revival 
featured an all-black cast and was mounted one year after Pearl Bailey led a revival of Hello, Dolly, which itself featured an all-black cast. This album is great. For the most part, it sticks to the orchestrations you would expect, but every now and then, it incorporates a Motown sound to change things up dramatically. I found these changes to be disarming and joyous, especially when those changes mean hearing a fair amount of classy saxophone. Much thanks to Danny Holgate and Horace Ott, who oversaw the musical arrangements for this revival, as well as Howard Roberts, who created new choral arrangements and acted as the production's musical director. I listened to the 1992 Broadway revival cast. I'll compliment these two more in the very near future, but Nathan Lane and Faith Prince, as Nathan Detroit and Adelaide, make this a must-listen. Their comedic timing is capital B brilliant. And finally, I listened to the 1995 studio cast. This is the only recording that goes out of its way to archive the entire score from start to finish. But the vocal performances aren't nearly as memorable as those on previous recordings. If you're a completist like me, it's a compelling curiosity, but I wouldn't blame others for skipping it. Now, as I mentioned, I was in the show a couple of times. When I was in middle school, I played Nathan Detroit, and then when I was in college, I played Angie the Ox and the Hotbox Master of Ceremonies. I was a skinny Ziploc bag of bones as an eighth grader, so just imagine my neck snapping under the weight of a gangster's plastic fedora. I also had a pair of enormous bright red dice that didn't fit into any of my pockets, but I was saddled with them anyway. I also recall our director telling me to, quote, go stage left and set up the crap game, which baffled me as a child and still does a little to this day because I have no idea what this really means in terms of practical stage business. Here I am, stage left, setting up the crap game. Look, my dice are so big. I should say we were presenting the junior edition of the show, which is considerably shorter than the official version. My college performance of Angie the Ox was a little more than pure fury because we were supposed to embrace our nicknames as gangsters. My name was Angie the Ox, so my fists were perpetually balled up into these little tiny white boy hooves, and I snorted a lot. I was an ox. It was a fun time. I seriously considered accepting a choreographer position for a drama camp production of Guys and Dolls more than a few years back. Guys and Dolls Jr., I should say. But doing so would have meant quitting my full-time job, so I did not accept that position. Great story, Jonathan, I know. And then finally, 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 I watched the 1992 Tony's performance in which J.K. Simmons can be seen playing Benny South Street and everyone is dressed like neon Dick Tracy villains. This revival ran for an astounding 1,140 43 performances, and there's even a documentary about the production of its cast recording, but I unfortunately could not find that online. And I also watched the 2009 Tony's performance featuring a game Titus Burgess of Kimmy Schmidt and the Little Mermaid fame as Nicely Nicely Johnson, and some unfortunate mic issues. Why did we never get a cast recording for this revival? I assume it's because it only ran for 121 performances, but still, we must preserve our Broadway history. If you watch that performance from 2009, there are some really unfortunate multimedia effects. Guys and Dolls was not asking for CGI. Thank you very much. Can do, can do, 
guy says the horse can do If he says the horse can do Can do, can do I think in Valentine Cause on the morning line The guy has got him figured at five to nine And look at Epitaph He wins it by a half According to this here in the telegraph It's for Revere I'll bite I hear his foot's alright Of course it all depends If it rained last night I Like smudge that the sound of the score I hear that must mean we're in the song deconstruction portion of the episode. Let's talk about it. Now in the hands of anyone else, Guys and Dolls would never open by focusing on the likes of Nicely Nicely Johnson, Benny South Street, and Rusty Charlie. In the hands of anyone else, we'd begin with a Welcome to the World number or one that swiftly introduces us to the show's leads. But I'd like to think Lesser, Swirling, and Burroughs are trying something different here by focusing on this trio of supporting characters. Nicely, Benny, and Rusty clue us in on what the guys of guys and dolls are all about. Their slang, their drives, their overall aesthetic. A newcomer should understand how obsessed these dopes are with gambling while also wanting to delight in and spend more time with them. Their vices make them imperfect but not unlovable, which is an important thematic point. But beyond my directorial musings, this is also a jaunty and easy humdinger of a song. Enough said. I realize I say the show doesn't do a welcome to the world number, but there is an opening sequence referred to as Runyon Land, in which we see the hustle and bustle of New York City. That introduces us to the hustle and bustle of the world. So what do I know? I act like I'm an expert, but I'm not. I'm traveling light. No one's weighing me down. Got my ticket in my pocket, and I'm ready to blow I'll carry though your propositions of you and I'm damned if your sister I'll marry guess I left my heart in my other suit and I'm traveling light no traveling light is a song that was cut from the original Broadway production when Frank Lesser realized Sam Levine was tone deaf and wouldn't be able to handle the vocal requirements of his character, Nathan Detroit. It's available as the final bonus track on the 1995 studio album and establishes the anti-marriage ideology of Nathan and Sky Masterson. If it were up to me, and it soon shall if my pact with the devil comes through, I would retrofit it to serve as an introduction for Sky and Sky alone. I don't like the idea of Nathan 
Nathan being so callous that he'd openly mock the idea of marriage, considering he's been engaged to Adelaide for so long. He could be afraid of it, but I don't want him to be this snide bully. Let's have Sky sing that song. He is a true floater of a loner. It's a good song, so why not add it in some form or fashion? Get back to me, the devil. Let's make this shit happen already. glance by the two pair of pants by his calm steady voice his feet on the ground as I run to his arms that at last I've come home safe and sound and till then I shall As a surprise to me Mine I leave to chance And chemistry Chemistry? Yeah, chemistry Ooh, goodness, I'll know what a, what a goddamn humdinger Now, understanding I've already made my case For a tough as nails Sarah Brown I also like to think she's the type of person Who'd run a mission like a well-oiled machine When Skye first encounters her there I would want Sarah tackling All sorts of practical business Folding chairs, setting out food, etc Maybe Skye tries to help Sarah And he is rebuffed Since she knows what works And doesn't need him getting in the way A trap a lot of people fall into when playing Sarah is choosing to make her cold up top. Instead, I think Sarah should interact with Skye as if she finds him to be hilarious, a little ridiculous. She's seen a thousand guys like Skye in her time, but he's the first to try and have a serious conversation with her. He should fascinate her in a rueful sort of way, like... Who the hell is this guy? She's indulging him, playing the game to see where it will take her. But this is her house, and he is a visitor at the end of the day. When Skye kisses her out of nowhere, and she slaps him, that's gotta be a no-means-no moment. A you-don't-get-to-fuck-with-me-like-that moment. Again, Sarah and Skye don't have to be boring, so let's stop operating under such a lazy assumption. Anyway, this is a great duet. Chemistry. Yeah, chemistry. I honestly have no more to say about it. It's a classic. Full stop. No further questions. It is performed as a solo by Joe Stafford on the Reprise Musical Repertory Theater cast, and she is utterly captivating and surprisingly melancholy. And I'll know 
also enjoy the version we get from the 76 revival in which Sky's portion of the song becomes a funky swagger. Chemistry? Yeah, chemistry. may not have had the baby face running the signs to Sky in the original stories, but his vocals evoke the character's sweet, hard-to-resist charms. I want to hug Randolph's version of Sky, which is more than I can say for most interpretations of the character. I love you, a bushel and a peck, a bushel and a peck, and a hug around the neck, a hug around the neck, and a barrel and a heap, a barrel and a heap, and I'm talking in my sleep about you. Bushland a Peck was cut for the purposes of the film, though an instrumental version is heard in the background while Adelaide is in her dressing room. I've always wanted to stage this number so Adelaide and the hot box dancers pull Nathan into their routine, somewhat against his will. Imagine old Adelaide singing to Nathan during this song. It would be so dang cute. This song was performed with revised lyrics by the McGuire sisters on the reprised musical repertory theater album. Very long phrase to say, not easy to get out. And that version is as fun as all get out. I never considered how this song could easily work in a three-way harmony, boogie-woogie, bugle-boy style, but it makes sense when you hear it. I love you, a bushel and a peck, a bushel and a peck, and a hug around the neck, hug around the neck, and a barrel and a heap, barrel and a heap, and I'm talking in my sleep about you, about you. But anyway, in general, a bushel and a peck, it's a goddamn delight. Goddamn delight. When they get on the train for Niagara, and she can hear church bells chime, the compartment is air-conditioned, and the mood's sublime. Then they get off 
at Saratoga for the fourteenth time. A basin can develop la grip, <laughs> la grip, la post-nasal drip, with the wheezes and the sneezes and a sinus that's really a pimp. From a lack of community property and a feeling she's getting too old, a person can develop a bad, bad cold. Guys and Dolls may be a glorious battleship of a Broadway musical, but a ship isn't worth spit if its crew can't sail the high seas properly. Huh, this ship metaphor isn't working out for me. Let's try this. Guys and Dolls is like a compass. It can point you in the right direction. It's a tool you can use to get where you want to go. In this case, theatrical superstardom. But you're the one who's going to have to log the miles and put in the sweat if you're ever going to reach that goal. How do you like this compass bit? Is it better? Better metaphor? It's better, right? Sure. What I'm trying to say is, a lot of people take a song like Adelaide's Lament, which you just heard, they take it for granted because of its status as this legendary, perfectly written character study. They assume if the song is simply presented without any thought on their part, it will bring the house down every time. What do I have to do? The The song's perfect. What do I have to do, they ask. These people are buffoons who won't get any laughs. I can assure you, I have seen it. I have seen this song fail because of a lack of work on the part of the performer. And you want to know why? Because the song isn't a commandment chiseled in stone. It's an invitation. It wants to work with you because without your investment, it can't thoroughly shine. Adelaide's Lament is only as strong as you make it. So go to the mat and give it your all. Every single word and beat and sniffle and emotional shift is critical here because if you can't deliver a high quality version of Adelaide's Lament, you're going to lose a fair amount of your audience in the process. They want to love Adelaide, trust me, but no one can love a lackluster, boring Adelaide. Comedy is a serious business, so do the work. I kind of want Adelaide to have a small dog she can sing to during this song, but that might be gilding the lily. It's definitely gilding the lily because everyone's going to stare at the dog no matter what the actor does as Adelaide. Hmm, damn it. I thought I had something there. See, I tried to distract from rather than embrace the song. Bad idea, don't do it. Yes, sir, when you see a guy reach for stars in the sky, you can bet that he's doing it for some doll. When you spot a John waiting out in the rain Chances are he's insane As only a John can be for a Jane When you meet a gent Paying all kinds of rent For a flat that could flatten a Taj Mahal Call it sad, call it funny But it's better than even money That black guy's only doing it for some doll Any staging of the song Guys and Dolls will likely involve a man carrying an enormous stack of packages while trailing behind his posh, totally in power wife, which is an image I can get behind. Carry my packages and light my very long cigarette, you dope. You're lucky to be in my presence. In the film, Stubby K points to us through the camera so he can deliver some well-timed shade, and I love that moment. Stubby K, the original queen of shade. Did I mention our 
choreographer in middle school was the local radio DJ. A lot of clapping and knee slapping without actual movement. That was a, that was his style. Don't move the feet. Never move the feet. Never move. Never walk. Never go anywhere. Just do a lot of clapping and slapping the knees. Slap, slap, slap. Clap, clap, clap. Maybe a bit of foot stomping. If you ever moved your feet, it was only to stomp. Never to actually get anywhere. We didn't really get anywhere with him. <laughs> but I should be nicer to this person I haven't seen since I was a child. I'm going to be nice. Thank you for your effort. There, I'm being nice. Ask me, how do I feel? Ask me now that we're cozy and clinging. Well, sir, all I can say is if I were a bell, I'd be ringing. From the moment we kissed tonight, that's the way you just got to behave. Boy, if I were from the song If I Were a Bell is If I Were a Salad I Know I'd Be Splashing My Dressing Pretty sexual if you ask me Splashing Her Dressing Someone call a cop This shit's getting serious over here During this number Sarah casts off the weight of the world and dives headfirst into the sort of joy she has avoided for so long I'm all about it Sarah deserves to have a good time for once You can be a servant to the world but you also need to serve yourself So during If I Were a Bell if you're playing Sarah you better have a goddamn delightful festival of a time Give that woman the love and joy that she deserves God Damn it. So the next two songs are usually paired together. Let's hear a little bit of My Time of Day first. My time of day is the dark time A couple of deals before dawn When the street belongs to the cop And the janitor with a mop And the grocery clerks are all gone when the smell of the rainwashed pavement comes up clean and fresh and cold, and the street lamp light fills the gutter with gold, that's my time of day, my time of day. And you're the only doll I've ever wanted to share it with me. And now let's hear a little bit of I've Never Been in Love Before.
So again, these are usually paired together. One, two, buckle my shoe. Let's start by discussing my time of day. I tend to believe all of the songs in Guys and Dolls are treasures, but then I remember how my time of day is a tad forgettable. I'm all about Sky cautiously placing his heart on his sleeve, and the lyrics are very workmanlike and earthbound, which makes sense for a guy who's used to trafficking and real experience over flights of fancy. He's talking about grocers, janitors, and their mops, the smell of rain, and the glow of the street lamps. Do I like this song? Actually, I think I like this song. I'm fine. (laughs) I've never been in love before, though. Wow. That is a song for the ages. The music and lyrics conjure the compression of a strong, thrilling embrace you wish could last forever. Now, as I said, I'm all about the 76 revival of the show, but this is the one instance where the Motown influence feels more like a shoehorned injection than a well-considered addition. Obadiah. Obadiah? What's that? Obadiah Masterson. That's my real name. You know you're the first person I ever told that to? I've never been in love before. All at once, it's you. It's you. It's the revival's one misstep, but I respect the desire to experiment. Both of these songs were cut for the film and replaced by a new song by Frank Lesser known as Your Eyes Are the Eyes of a Woman in Love. Let's hear a little bit of that. Your eyes are the eyes of a woman in love And oh, how they give Why try to deny you're a woman in love When I know very well what I say I say no substitution, this replacement of two songs for this one song, it's a mistake. It's ultimately a mistake to me. I admire Frank Lesser for knocking out three new songs for the movie, but he hit a home run the first time at bat, and anything that aims to replace I've never been in love before is going to feel inferior. It's also a matter of pace. I've never been in love before moves at a nice clip, whereas a woman in love feels like a bit of a drag from the moment it starts. No offense, Mr. Lesser, please don't haunt me from the grave.
Take Back Your Mink is yet another song that was cut for the film, and it was replaced by Pet Me Papa, in which Adelaide and her dancers appear dressed as cats and tip over milk bottles. Both songs support Adelaide's emotional state at this point in the story, allowing her to vent some anti-Nathan frustrations while performing for her hotbox audience. Mink is great and arguably an even stronger showcase for the character than a bushel and a peck, but I would go gaga if more productions used Pet Me Papa as the opening for Act 2. It roars. It is a straight-up bop. Debbie Reynolds' take on Mink is wonderful. You can find it on the Reprise Musical Repertory Theater album. As I mentioned previously, Reynolds knows you can't simply deliver the material as written. You have to relish in it, find all of the opportunities for silliness and spots where one can sigh, blubber, or squeak with abandon. These hotbox numbers should feel indulgent. They're fun. We want to stay within them as long as possible if the cast is doing their job right. And Debbie Reynolds keeps me locked in with ease. So thank you, Debbie, for listening to the podcast. Uh, I, I sent it to you via my podcast time machine, and you listened to it, and you took my direction. So thank you, Debbie. Thank you, thank you, thank you. She'd be nothing without me. Velvet, I can wish you for the collar of your coat and fortune smiling all along your way. But more I cannot wish you than to wish you find your love, your own true love this day. Mansions I can wish you, seven footmen all in red, and calling cards upon a silver tray. But more I cannot wish you than to wish you find your love, your own true love this day. Standing there, gazing at you, full of the bloom of you. But more I 
cannot wish you than to wish you find your love, your own true love this day. The character of Arvid Abernathy doesn't have a lot of stage time, but when he breaks into the song More I Cannot Wish You, I find myself on the brink of tears as if he's my own grandfather. The lyrics have a bit of the saccharine quality you'd find in a song like Something Sort of Grandish from Finian's Rainbow. See the references to the sheep's eye and the licorice tooth, which I still I have no idea what those references. They're baffling to me. But the soothing and parental quality of the music is what does me in every time. Women are often cast in the role of Adelaide, which I'm all about. Make me think of my Nana or my Grandpa. Either way, I'm going to be putty in your hands. Remember how in the Runyon stories, Sarah Brown's father and brother ruined their lives with gambling, this family history could and should be used to influence how Arvide and Sarah relate to each other in this scene. I don't think Arvide wants Sarah to find love because he feels she's incomplete without a husband. I think he wants her to find love because life has dealt Sarah some painful hands, and he doesn't want her to close herself off as a result. I also forget how Arvide sees quality in Sky long before Sarah does, so it makes sense he would be rooting for him specifically. He realizes Skye and Sarah are similarly wounded and can help each other. Arvide Abernathy, the secret weapon of guys and dolls. Sung, this song is sung by Clark Dennis on the Reprise Musical Repertory Theater album, As If He Is Rocking On The Street Where You Live, from My Fair Lady. Velvet, I can wish you for the collar of your coat And fortune smiling on was not meant for an ingenue, Clark Dennis, but thanks for trying. Uh, thank you. All right, so there's this whole sequence in the sewers of New York City known as the Crap Shooters Ballet, and I only bring up the ballet because when I was cast as Angie the Ox in college, I assumed I would get to be a part of the very elaborate, challenging Crap Shooters Ballet dance sequence. While this thought scared the hell out of me, I also view the ballet as an exciting opportunity to push myself as a dancer. Then the choreographer told me I'd be doing comedic business center stage with the other non-dancers while everyone else leapt and twirled around us. Needless to say, this was a deflating moment, but I'm not upset about it. That would be ridiculous. What I'm still upset about is how I wasn't cast in On the Town, not even as the hot dog vendor. I couldn't have been the hot dog vendor. Here's my audition. Hi, Jonathan Pernasek, represented by no one, auditioning for the role of the hot dog vendor. Here's a hot dog. That cast had like 40 people in it. I could have played the hot dog vendor. I'm not upset about it, though. A lady wouldn't flirt with strangers. She'd have a heart. She'd have a soul. A lady wouldn't make little snake eyes at me when I bet my life on this floor. So let's keep the party polite. Let's keep the party polite. Never get out of my sight. Never get out of my sight. Stick with you, baby. of time, I will simply say my favorite part of Luck Be a Lady comes right at the end, which you would have heard, when all of the gamblers scream, ha! They sing, coming out, coming out, coming out, coming out, right, ha! Who doesn't like a good ha? 
I dig how Peter Gallagher as Sky delivers, and so the best that I can do is pray. The way he delivers that line in the 92 album, he chuckles right before the word pray. It's a good, subtle choice, and I tip my hat to whomever came up with the idea. Peter Gallagher, the director, whomever. I give credit to everyone. Hmm. Serve a paper and sue me, sue me. What can you do me? I love you. Thank you! Give a holler and hate me, hate me. Go ahead, hate me. When I you love you. wind up in jail, don't come to me to bail you. Sue Me is a smart song made genius by 1992 revival cast members Nathan Lane and Faith Prince. I almost referred to Nathan Lane as Nathan Detroit. Do yourself the favor of watching them perform this number if you haven't already done so. Performances are available on YouTube. They will absolutely, these two will make your day. Sue Me is meant to be this comedic duet for Nathan and Adelaide, but the more you play up Adelaide's all-too-real anguish as the song goes on, the more you'll impact and surprise your audience. Adelaide doesn't enjoy being a nag. She's at the end of her rope in this moment. So when she breaks down into tears, it should affect Nathan on a deep level. And it would be hilarious if Nathan wound up blubbering right alongside her upon realizing what he has done to this woman's heart. You'd get laughs and newfound admiration for these characters. I'm telling you, take my advice. The film adds another song for Nathan, which is simply known as Adelaide. Give up cards and dice, and go for shoes and rice. So gentlemen, deal me out, do not try to feel me out. I got no more evenings free, since Adelaide, Adelaide, and my love and Adelaide has taken a chance. Talk about your long shots, taking a chance on me. On the one hand, you could view this as little more than an excuse to stroke Sinatra's ego, but the song is categorically delightful. After all these years, it's never been officially added to the show, as far as I can tell, though the 95 studio cast does include it as a bonus track. If you find yourself directing guys and dolls and can swing it, I would suggest adding it to the show.
for those of you who are wondering how I would stage sit down your rock in the boat, I know for a fact it would involve nicely, nicely Johnson getting caught in bright beams of light as if God is putting him on the spot. The first beam of light would envelop him in the blink of an eye and freak him out, as would the second, but then as a joke, I'd have the third beam of light appear at a random point on stage and nicely would have to walk into it half annoyed. He's keeping up with the game of the song. This is funny, right? It's funny. You're funny, Jonathan. I'm, yeah, you're right. I am funny. I'm a genius. Few things please me more than a production of Guys and Dolls that chooses to blow this song out and make the back half a raucous display of religious frenzy. Rockin' the Boat is the unquestionable 11 o'clock showstopper and everyone's favorite song from the show. If you disagree, you're nothing but a filthy liar. Boat slaps, boat fucks, and the best version of Boat I heard this week is from the 76 revival, which is why you heard it a moment ago. That taps into a tent revival spirit I buy into without hesitation, and it easily is the most effective original arrangement from that production. And then finally, let's talk a little about Marry the Man today. What are we, crazy or something? At Wanamaker's and Saxon Climbs, a lesson I've been taught. You can't get alterations on a dress you haven't bought. At any vegetable market from Borneo to Nome, you mustn't squeeze a melon till you get the melon home. You simply gotta gamble. You get no guarantee. Now doesn't that kind of apply to you and I? Mary the Man Today has always been a bit of a head-scratcher for me. Pairing Adelaide and Sarah for a duet makes a lot of sense, and the song is quite funny, but it feels like an anti-climax as the final number of the night. I realize there's a reprise of Guys and Dolls shortly after this, but you get what I'm saying. It's the final full number in the show. Rockin' the Boat leaves audiences breathless. It's a feast for the soul, whereas this feels more like an amuse-bouche. Perhaps I'm coming around on my own criticisms again. Maybe we need this to bring us back to what matters most, character. The double wedding of the show's final moments can feel rushed if we're not provided this moment of contemplation for the female leads. We need the moment where they realize, yeah, sure, these guys aren't perfect, but there are guys and we'll whip them into shape in the long run. In the words of Adelaide, they simply gotta take a gamble, which is a fantastic turn of phrase. It brings everything full circle. Love Love's the greatest gamble of all, baby. So yeah, forget what I was saying earlier. This show is basically perfect. Now, normally this is the part of the show where we would hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, 5678 Orange Grove, as it were. But we have a brand new Patreon donor, Chris, not my boyfriend, Chris, separate Chris, different Chris. And of course, Chris, because of his generous donation of $5 a month, he has earned a musical shout out. So let's get that musical shout out for Chris. No. It seems to me you live your life like a candle in the wind. No one no, no, no. Insert the lyrics. 
So, hello, hello there. It's me, Elton John. Yes, it's me, Elton John. Oh, thank you very much. Please stop clapping or else I'll murder you in your beds. <laughs> it's me, Elton John. I once yelled at Tina Turner during a concert rehearsal. Isn't that fun? I yelled at Tina Turner. <laughs> I'm a right bastard, aren't I? Oh, hello, hello. Yes, it's me, Elton John, and I am, I am being told that uh, I am here to deliver a musical shout-out to none other than Chris. Yes, Patreon donor Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. Now, I, Elton John, of course, am the composer of such hit shows as uh, Billy Elliot, the musical, uh, Lestat, and the upcoming Devil Wears Prada adaptation. Yes, it's true. I'm Elton John. This is me, Elton John, talking to you, Christopher. But I have come up with an original tune just for you. It's all about you, Christopher. It's a brand new tune that no one's ever heard of before. That's because it's new. Uh, if anyone had ever heard it before, it would have been... Uh, it would have not been considered original now, would it? Uh, well, I believe... Uh, everyone ready? Okay, I don't have a piano. I'm just here in an uh, airport closet, broom closet at the airport. So, uh, and it seems to me your name is Chris and you donate to the show. Wow, wow. You reach into your wallet and you give your dough. And all I think I know is that your name is Chris. I think I also know this. You're a pretty cool guy. I faced away from the microphone because I don't want to spike it. Ah, that's it. Yeah, that was the original song for you. Ooh, Elton John here. And Elton John is snacking. He's, got, he's hunkering for a snacking, is what I should say. I'm going to get myself a goddamn piece of beef jerky. American beef jerky. I'm in America right now, working on The Devil Wears Prada. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to finish my work on that while chomping on some beef jerky. I must, uh, might also get laid. I might also go into an airport bathroom and get myself laid. Have you heard of this grinder? I've been using it for the last day or two and everybody's chomping at the bit to get Elton's jerky. But that's personal. That has nothing to do with you, Christopher. Thank you again for auditioning. Not auditioning. Oh boy, I have an audition later this uh, afternoon. I'm trying to adapt Flowers in the Attic for Broadway and I have a feeling that it's not going to go well. Well, it seems to me you fucked your sister in the attic while she bathed. Final thoughts on Guys and Dolls, despite the aforementioned rockiness of the Havana Cuba sequence. Guys and Dolls still manages to be one of my favorite musicals after all these years. It was the first show I ever did. Well, unless you count Coming of Age, a show about puberty that straight up doesn't exist anymore, from what I can tell. But yeah, I love Guys and Dolls. With some of our past subjects, the idea of listening to several cast recordings makes my stomach clench up. But I never once got sick of Guys and Dolls when researching it this week. The book makes me laugh, the score makes me swoon, and I would watch production in every city in America if someone paid me to do so. I want to see every version of Guys and Dolls imaginable. Put it in space, make it post-apocalypse. Do whatever you want. You can't put a dent in this show. Well, unless you don't do the work of fixing the Havana Cuba sequence. Again, do the work. Smooth out those wrinkles. Now, in 1951, Guys and Dolls won the Tony Award for Best Musical. We all know this. And we have to ask ourselves, what were the other nominees? Well, this, uh, this is from the era of the Tony Awards in which the nominees were never announced. So here is what could have been considered from that Broadway season. Got a great rundown here for you. Uh, the shows from that season include Alive and Kicking, 
a review of sketches and songs, the likes of which would soon be replaced with the advent of TV variety shows, Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times dismissed Alive and Kicking as a, quote, mediocre review in a mongrel style. Yikes! What a word! We have Call Me Madam. This is an Ethel Merman vehicle in which she plays a widow who is appointed U.S. ambassador to the fictional nation of Lichtenberg. It ran over 600 performances, so, you know, that's something. We have Michael Todd's Peep Show. That's the name of the show. It's another review. This one decidedly more sexual in nature. Naked women appeared as mermaids in a tank of water that had been dyed blue, and they apparently had trouble getting this blue dye out of their pubic hair. Look, I just report what Wikipedia has to offer. Don't look at me. Turn away from me. There was Out of This World. This is a Cole Porter musical based on the Roman play Amphitryon. It ran for 157 performances. From what I can tell, the show harkened back to the mad silliness of musicals from the 1920s, and almost no one was interested. And finally, we have Tickets, Please. This is yet another review, which Time Magazine characterized as intimate. Sure. Hal Prince was the assistant stage manager. Sure. Now, guys and dolls, this is huge. This is a big announcement. Originally, I was going to give it the number, I believe I was going to put it right under Sweeney Todd into the woods and Carolina Change. But the more I think about it, you know, chalk it up to nostalgia or the, the bias of an actor who's been in this show a couple of times. But Guys and Dolls, I think that's, that's one of my fucking favorite shows, my most favorite shows of all time. So I'm putting it at number one. That's right. Carolina Trange has, has finally been ousted from the number one spot. This is huge. I didn't think this was going to happen. I, I wasn't sure. I, I, I really didn't think that Guys and Dolls was going to take the number one slot. But I had to be honest with myself. I, I never get tired of it. I never get tired of it. So number one, Guys and Dolls. And of course, if you want to look at that current ranking of all of the shows we have covered, go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod. You'll find a pinned tweet that will take you to the Google Sheet, the second tab of which is that ranking. When it comes to show-related ephemera, I would like to play for you a bit of audio from a trailer. This is a trailer for a regional theater production of Guys and Dolls, and you are going to hear that audio now. They call you Lady Luck But there is room for doubt At times you have a very unladylike way of running out Luck be a lady tonight Luck be a lady tonight Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with Luck be a lady tonight Thank God someone had the courage to give Luck Be a Lady the creepy movie trailer treatment. It needed to be done. What is this, a fucking haunted house story? Every shot in this trailer, I should say, is in slow motion and set against an inky black backdrop. Uh, There's cash flowing, masculine hands, a single die crashing and vibrating with the promise of sudden wealth or calamity. The faces of white twinks staring intensely at die, coveting wealth and fearing calamity. 
It's like we're filtering guys and dolls through the departed, and I find it to be morbidly hilarious. Oh, and in case you were wondering, here are two of the songs I remember from Coming of Age, the puberty musical I did when I was in the sixth grade. There's On the Outside Looking In, which goes like this. On the outside looking in, looking in. That's all I remember. This was immediately followed. This was... Okay, so... On the Outside Looking In was sung by the kids who were not considered cool. They wanted to be cool. And this was followed immediately by a reprise, an ironic reprise, called On the Inside Looking Out. Sung by a cool kid who wants to leave. She wants to, oh, be free of the shackles of coolness. Oh, she wants it so bad. And the other song I remember from that show was Girl Watching. Ooh, ooh, mm-mm, ah, ah, mm-mm, ooh, ooh, mm-mm-mm. Girl watching. That is how it went. That is how it went. And the boys in that song wore sunglasses. And they had girls walk by the boys. And they were being oddly sexual. Fucking weird show. Now, normally, we would take a ride on the musical carousel at this point to determine which show we are discussing next week. But because our latest Patreon donor, Chris, not my boyfriend, Chris, different Chris, He is donating $5 a month, which means he gets the one-time opportunity to choose what show we discuss. And so next week, we will be discussing the 2016 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and that is... School of Rock. What are you doing to me, Chris? What are you doing to me? You're going from, I'm going from one of my favorite shows to this nonsense, Andrew Lloyd Webber's School of Rock. I don't know if anybody didn't know that little factoid. He wrote it. That's one of the biggest show facts that you'll need to know going into next week, that it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber joint. So that's what we'll get. Thank you so much, Chris. And we will be doing that. So I hope you come back for that. If you would like to donate to the show, do so by visiting patreon.com slash musical man pod thank you again to chris for being our latest donor everyone anyone and everyone who donates at least one dollar a month will get a verbal shout out so let's get those right now i'm gonna refer to you as christopher from now on chris yeah you're christopher because my boyfriend's name is chris and your name's gonna be christopher so here's your shout out christopher jenna aaron lily Haley, brandon brad matt zach and marisol also much thanks to matt for upping his donation to ten dollars a month If you donate $3 a month, you get a musical shout-out just like the one you heard from Elton John. That sounded exactly like Elton John, and nobody... It was the real thing. Patty, you, you don't have any idea how much work we put into getting... Elton John to sit still for 10 minutes in an airport closet and record that for us. He was a nightmare. He yelled at me. It was really annoying. And if you donate $5 a month, not only do you get show selection uh, privilege, you get to determine which show we uh, talk about here. You get access to the All I Ask of You Advice show. And, oh, I forgot about this. Anyone who donates at least $1 gets access to the special episode all about the 73rd Annual Tony Awards. So there you go. If you, if you just donate one dollar, you're going to get that special episode. Now, the first season of All I Ask of You, that advice show, has wrapped, so you can get all 12 episodes right the fuck now. And if you donate $10 a month, you get access to The Snub Club. This is a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our fifth episode drops today, right when this episode is dropping, and the subject is Be More Chill. If you want to find out early, if you want to find out right the hell now what our subject is going to be for July, well, you're going to have to shove out the bucks, baby. 
yeah. Donations go toward cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting Podbean costs. And once again, we're getting closer and closer each week. But if we ever get to the point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, that will result in my producing M3, the movie musical man. I have had to uh, do a couple of takes when it comes to the pitch on the premise for this special series, but I hope that this is my last one. You wouldn't have heard all of the flubs from earlier, but that show will involve me watching each and every month a trio of movie musicals that are somehow linked by theme. And when we get to that point, the fr- I know for a fact that the first episode of M3 is going to be dedicated to the Descendants trilogy, the Disney Channel original movies. Yes, that's true. So, if you want to help us get closer to that goal, donate, baby. You can find us via Apple Podcasts if you ever write a review in the Apple Podcasts store, I guess. You can get my cover of Light My Candle from Rent. If you are streaming, that's through musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod, and email us at MusicalManPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Alex Green for our wonderful logo, and to Zach Little for our music, and that's that doorbell, baby! Oh, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>